0: Hallelujah. O Lord, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You that Your Word reveals to us in specific revelation Jesus Christ, the plan of God, redemption and atonement for souls lost and dead in sin. Sacrifice and offering You have not required, O Lord. Please give us an open ear to what you do require. Burnt offering and sin offering will not satisfy. They can only point in the old covenant to what would satisfy in the new. Behold, I have come, says Christ our Lord. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your laws within my heart. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. We thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice that covers, satisfies, washes away, that atones for, that satisfies the wrath that our sin deserved once and for all. May we join with the testimony Of the word of God in the declaration of Christ as the final and sufficient sacrifice. Longing to declare the glad news of deliverance in the congregation and the assembly of the beloved. May we not restrain our lips in declaring that Jesus Christ is our salvation. And in him is our hope eternal. Oh father I pray that as we open your scriptures today. That you would write them on the tables of our hearts. May they prove sharp and powerful, Lord, and discerning that our understanding might be quickened, that sin might be cut away, that our confession would be more articulate, that our confidence would increase, and all that you would be glorified, Lord, by your Spirit's use of this time and your holy word. Thank you, Father. I pray that every one of us would here, Lord, would represent a grateful heart joining together in worship and thankfulness and overflowing in praise at the glorious opportunity Your grace has afforded us today to open up the Scriptures and to learn of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is in that holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 41. Psalm chapter 41. In a moment, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word. Several weeks ago, we read Psalm chapter 40. And we saw how in the book of Hebrews, the writer attached and identified the messianic revelation of Jesus Christ with these words that were recorded in ancient times and sung in the congregation of the peoples all the way back to David's era. This morning, we find in Psalm chapter 41... A pairing, that is these psalms can certainly go together, they match. And Psalm 41 not only carries with it similar themes related to the poetry, but also similar themes related to the Messiah. Psalm 41, Jesus Christ himself quotes in John chapter 13 and identifies with certain phrasing there that David again records for us. So now let's read this psalm together. Stand with me if you can. With your Bibles open to Psalm 41. And let's read together these 13 verses. The title of which, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And here we are in verse 1 reading. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. Verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, verse 9, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Look back several verses in Psalm chapter 40, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 41 verse 1 follows on the heels. In the way it appears in our canon with verse 1, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. And so 41 appears as a sequel after 40. Psalm chapter 40 closes with this note of neediness and desperation. The psalmist identifying with the lowly elements of society. He uses the economic analogy to describe his plight. I am poor and needy. He also says in that verse, You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. There's this anxious cry. There's this importunate plea O Lord, do not wait, because in my neediness and my desperation, in my famished state of soul, I am indeed poor and needy and fragile. And so in the next verse of the next chapter, we see that the psalmist's assurance of answered prayer has arrived when he declares that those who ask in this way, those who plead recognizing their infirmity and their fallibility and their desperation... They are among those who can say, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. And so we see a theme here tying the two together of poverty. Psalm 41 is a fitting song to follow. Psalm 40. The preceding psalm's last verse, which includes the phrase, As for me, I am poor and needy, presents a fitting introduction for the next hymn. This psalm is the final installment, that is Psalm 41, is the final installment in the first of five divisions in the Psalter. If your Bible notes this, you'll see at the bottom of Psalm 41, the title of the next segment of Psalms, Book 2. The Book of Psalms is divided into five books, and we're here concluding the first with Psalm 41. And so, this is where we are in the record. In this marvelous poem, let me back up. Psalm 41 presents a fitting introduction. Psalm 40 presents a fitting introduction for the next hymn, Psalm 41. And this psalm, that is our focus of our study today, is the final installment in the first of five divisions of the Psalter. David's inspired pen expounds multi dimensional revelation. It's fitting for every age of redemptive history, as we will soon see. In this marvelous poem, Christ appears like a shadowy but unmistakable figure on double-exposed film. Jesus Himself identifies with David's ode, as we mentioned in John 13, and we'll cover that as we close this message later. Let us praise the Lord from everlasting to everlasting, even as verse 13 Declares by way of vow is the position of the author, declaring to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting these praises, and with the double certainty in closing, Amen and Amen. It is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would move us to praise the Lord from everlasting to everlasting for his glorious and gracious truth, here revealed, especially as it appears so much more glorious. To us, from our vantage point in the redemptive historical narrative of God's great salvation. In Psalm 41, here is Christ proclaimed in double-exposed poetic photography. I've titled this message, Double Exposure. Film is getting a little obsolete. and With digital cameras these days, you'd have to accomplish this uh, uh, photographic feat another way. Uh, Photoshop or something like that, but back in the days of film and thirty-five millimeter cameras and so on, every once in a while you would have a roll of film, and you couldn't remember if you had used it or not, and you might put it back in your camera, having already taken a full roll of pictures. And what will ha- what would happen then in that case? As each uh, film frame would be double exposed, you would have two subjects in one photograph. The first roll of film might be a skyline or a sunset, and the second time that frame came around might be a picture of your daughter or your son. And so you had two subjects, this scene from nature and this identity of a family member. And that is a fitting analogy, I think, to describe what is often the case in the book of Psalms. Sometimes in the Psalms, there's a double exposure, if you will, it's one piece of film, namely the poem, but in it we, te- we see two images. We often see the image of David and his immediate circumstances, and we also often, and usually this is the case, we see the image, if it couldn't be said in every psalm, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a relationship between the two, and we can never emphasize this enough, because the New Testament introduces Christ as the Son of David. We cannot understand or know Christ as the Bible would have us understand and know him unless we see Christ in the Old Testament record, particularly his relationship to David. And so it behooves us in our psalm study to look for those double exposures. Look for those psalms that are a picture of David and a picture of Christ. And in your study, you'll find psalms like Psalm 41 showing us how this is a message for a sinner like David, crying out for salvation, for hope in dire circumstances, and also how this is a prophecy of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who would be the ultimate answer to David's prayer as he cries for help under the debilitating circumstances of sin, enemies of the soul within, enemies of the soul without, and anything else that David that moved David to cry out in petition. And also moved him to praise. A heading for three points for you this morning to develop this point a little more. The heading is a multi-perspective study of Psalm 41 reveals the following. That is two perspectives primarily. Well, actually three. But think of that double exposure. As As we study Psalm 41 from the perspective of Christ, we'll see things highlighted and emphasized. As we also study Psalm 41 from the perspective of David, a more personal perspective, we can find applications in that way as well, and we'll consider it as a, in its literary context. Point number one, we'll start there, poetic and literary situation, situation meaning location. What is the significance of the context of this as a poem, a literary work, and its situation in the Bible? Let's study Psalm 41 and consider it from that perspective this morning. Secondly, personal applications. As we consider its author, its human author, David, let's consider what we can learn from Psalm 41 related to the plight of a representative individual like David, someone we can relate to. And in that study, draw personal application for our own life. And thirdly, let's close this morning's message with the prophetic implications. The perspective of Psalm 41 with the New Testament in view. And Christ's own gospel record, as John records it, is so helpful and provides us the key in this regard. As he himself, that is Jesus Christ in his work and ministry, quotes from Psalm 41 and identifies events in his own life that fulfilled what David wrote so many thousand years ago. First of all, poetic and literary situation. As we study Psalm 41, we see certain aspects of the beauty of this poem and this work coming to the fore. And first, let me note symmetry and parallels. If something is symmetrical, it has a beauty. It has beauty to it and desirable uh, shape and aesthetic to it because of its proportions. There's a balance, there's a shape, and there's an orderliness to how it is presented. We know this in artwork, where something is on the left, it's also balanced by something on the right, and thus we have something of a bilateral symmetry in a picture or in an image. This is something that the human eye and the human art can innately understand. If we go into a room that looks like my son's room right now, you'll find that it's very asymmetrical. I don't want to place all the blame on them, it's partly due To me, needing to bring order to that room. I joked before that it looks a little bit like the triumphal entry. Because all the cloaks are laid out as a carpet there. But that's not such a great analogy because it's much more chaotic than that. The cloaks at the triumphal entry served a purpose. The clothes in my son's room serves no purpose. It's a mess. It's chaotic. Now in this world that we live in that wants to deny the beauty and order of ultimate purpose behind the origin and design and creation of this world and all we know, the plan of human events, the course of human history, the purpose for life itself. We live in a society that wants to say there is no rhyme or reason. There is no symmetry. Why do they say this? Because if history and if our lives and if the world and the universe is given to us as just a mess, then we are the gods of order. We can step into that messy room, as it were, and we can take control and assort things and assign things and assimilate things and define meaning for ourselves. It's not so much that man rejects order outright, it's that he rejects the created order of God in his sin. David rails and militates against this false, sinful notion, even in the structure of his poetry. David doesn't write as some avant-garde modernistic relativist modern art with a bunch of ambiguous statements. No, he cuts to the quick and he states emphatically with parallels and clarity, drawing from old covenant history and proclaiming new covenant truths by way of prophecy that God is a God of order and there is symmetry and beauty and there is therein Something of the nature and the character of God. His holiness, His attributes, His distinctives available for us to see even in the poetic and literary situation of this psalm. Let me illustrate this in several ways. First of all, notice the symmetry and parallels just by way of two examples that we see in the phrase, in the concept of blessing and secondly in the concept of grace. Psalm 41.1 opens again with this verse. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called, again, this word, blessed in the land. You do not grieve him, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. David declares at the introduction of this ode here, this song, that blessed is the one. That is, the favor of God has rested upon the one who considers the poor. The one whose heart is in alignment with the concerns of God is visited in the day of trouble with deliverance. The Lord protects him. The Lord keeps him alive. Thus, the theme of blessing is upon, in the beginning and introduction, the grace beseecher, the one who seeks for, who depends on, who appeals to God's grace. Oh God, says David, in so many words, I am in trouble. I need your deliverance. I am one who is in a dangerous way. I need your protection. I am one who is a hair's breadth from death. Only you can keep me alive. I am in one who is a stranger, an outcast and under the judgment of God unless I am within your protected. And covenant place, the land. Thus, there is a blessing upon the grace beseecher that is seen in the introduction of this psalm. But in beautiful symmetry, David just doesn't seek for blessing and declare that blessing comes vertically from heaven down to the one who is in good standing with the Lord. But in symmetry and in parallel, he says at the close of his work in verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. Thus we are to understand a relationship with the Father. That is two ways. A communication. That is a speaking, an exchange of friendship. An exchange of ideas that is not just one direction, but two. There is a blessing that comes upon the beseecher. But there is a blessing offered from the same to and towards the grace bestower. In this picture, we see that in David's song, there is evidence declared, and there is faith that God will restore the communion that was lost in Eden. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day with the sweet exchange of uninterrupted holy interaction a perfect union with his identity and the one who had given him his purpose and calling, who had ordered his steps, who had breathed into the dust that became his body, who had animated and called and purposed him to steward his earth. This relationship was severed and broken, as we know, in the fall. And thus, the free flow of communication Was blocked by the flaming sword of judgment. And there was no bridge to be built. By the effort and plans of men. But David prophesies of a bridge. That would be erected by a sovereign God himself. Who would first bless from heaven upon. Those who are in trouble. And upon receiving that blessing. They would then respond. With corresponding blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has given me a place in the land, who has protected me, who has delivered me, who has considered me, who has not given me up to my enemies. Thus there is a blessing upon the grace beseecher, the one who cries out in its neediness for Christ. And then there is, from his cry, a blessing to the grace bestower. Let's consider the poetic and literary situation its symmetry and parallels by David's twofold reference to grace. Grace is referred to in verse 4. As for me, I said, David in the first person, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. David cries out for grace, for rescue. He is personally acquainted with his need for grace inasmuch as he knows the Holy Spirit has drawn to his attention the reality of his corrupt nature and heart. And thus he cries, Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And this is the cry for grace. Grace for rescue. David, though, sees a progression in his life. And there is a progression, consequently, in this psalm. Grace is not only there to rescue Grace is not only there to save, but grace is also there to restore. We move to verse 10 and we read, But you, O Lord, again, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. David, as we remember in the context here, is a magistrate musician. David is one who has been delegated purposes from God in justice, to rule and reign in righteousness, to bring the message of God's perfect will through his administration to the people. And as much as David is faithful to do that by his grace, he was testifying to the attributes of God in his anointed calling as a magistrate, as a ruler. And thus there is a parallel by application for us. God has given us grace in rescue from the effects of our sin, but that grace has also been granted to equip us to represent Him. So as far as we are anointed and called, we are called to demonstrate and proclaim Christ, to rule and reign with Him. And thus, this is an example of parallel in David's great works. Here is an example of his many uh, employments of this literary and poetic device. That he would repeat the concept again to add shades of meaning. To further expound upon the beauty and application of God's relationship with us. What is grace for? It's for the rescuing of the lost soul. But additionally, what is grace for? It's for the equipping and the ruling and reigning. The walking and uprightness, God's grace extended to us in sanctification that we might learn and know, meditate and understand and then apply His Word. Training for ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ our Lord. A multi-perspective study of Psalm 41 reveals these kinds of symmetrical and parallel literary devices and illusions. Secondly, under poetic and literary situations, let's consider what I call in a really cool phrase, the triune double emphatic at the end. Triune double emphatic. There's a three-part repetition. There's three times that David employs parallels. a parallel at the end of his psalm. He says in verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. The Lord and the God of Israel are parallel statements. And that makes the first in this verse. But first in this verse, secondly, from everlasting to everlasting, parallel statements that makes the second mention. And thirdly, amen and amen. The Lord and the God of Israel are paired together so that the identity of God is not left with only the Lord as more of an abstract notion of authority. Which God? Which Lord? To whom do we bow? So by way of emphasis, And to make it even more emphatic and clear, the psalmist adds the God of Israel. And into the heart of the biblically conscious Christian and the culturally schooled Jew at this time, the connotations would rush into the mind. Who is God? Again, he's emphasized to our consciousness. We're brought back to the reality and truth of the old covenant. His God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, or Israel. He is the covenant-keeping God whose faithful promises endure from generation to generation. He is the arbiter, the adjudicator, the faithful law-keeper, the covenant history-maker. He and His testimony carry forward His works according to the counsel of His will. And not one is ever frustrated. Not one is thwarted. Not one is for not forgotten. He is the one whose renown Inasmuch as he is the Lord and God of Israel is testified to here in indestructible holy writ, so that in the Word of God is recorded thousands of years of covenant history, proclaiming to us the pattern of God's testimony and fame through history, so that we might help, so we might be helped in identifying how he is working in your life and my life today. So there's a double emphasis. On the Lord, the God of Israel. But then there's an emphasis repeated twice. Of the scope of his eternal work and glory. He is the self-existent creator. He is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one who in his divine aseity. That means his satisfaction in and of himself. Needing nothing external. But fully and completely Perfect and whole in the sum of His being is from everlasting to everlasting. So here we see in this triune double emphatic. This is David speaking of the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And thirdly, he closes his song here with a double amen. Amen and amen. A double certainty. Identity, scope, and certainty, no doubt, not even a shadow, utterly verifiable, immovable, immortal, is our God. Amen and amen. Thirdly, under poetic and literary situation, this Psalm 41 is the close of the first book of five in the Psalms. If we go to the close of the second book in the Psalms, we'll see a parallel theme. Psalm 41 is closing with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Flip over to Psalm 72 and let's read the end there. Verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Are you recognizing the parallels there? This is the first of five closing themes in the book of the Psalms. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, we read in Psalm 41 at the close, the doxological close. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, we read in Psalm 72, 18, as it closes with its worshipful doxology as well. Blessed be His glorious name forever, even as we've read, from everlasting to everlasting. May the whole earth be filled with His glory and here again, we have the double emphatic certainty. Amen and amen. We go forward, marching through the Psalms in this cursory overview to see that there is structure, symmetry, and parallels even throughout the books of the Psalms. And we read in Psalm 89, in just the closing verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen amen. And amen. Right before book four. Reread in Psalm 106. At the close of book four. And transition to book five. We'll go to 47. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. That we may give thanks to your holy name. And glory in your praise. 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Now let me tell you, this book is building to a crescendo, this book of books, that is the Psalms. As we move forward towards the end of the book, all of the books, in Psalm 145, we see the, we see the theme of the praise of the Lord with emphatic certainty and overflowing glory rehearsed again and again. And actually, the last five psalms of the fifth book share this theme. Psalm 145, verse 1. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. I, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It goes on. At the close of this psalm, Psalm 145, the Lord preserves all who love Him, verse 20, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Psalm 146, then duly opens, verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Again, that double emphatic. O my soul, I will praise the Lord, and there it is a third time. As long as I live, I will sing praises to my God, yet a fourth, while I have My being. Verse 10 The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. And the psalm duly closes. Praise the Lord. 147.1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Psalm 147.20 He has not dealt thus with any other nation, they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. 148.1. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise you, highest heavens. It goes on with references to praise. The end, verse 14. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints. For the people of Israel who are near Him. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149. One, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. It's praise in the assembly of the godly. And then verse 9. To execute on them judgment. Written, this is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. 150 verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Verse 3. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This book builds to a crescendo and the praise of the Lord is its theme. And the last five chapters of the fifth and final book build in the imagery and in the clear emphatic statements of the glory of God until we have in our the mind's ear clashing symbols, raucous noise, A waterfall of praise, a thunderstorm of glory, a crescendo of God's almighty power. The poetic and literary situation of the Psalms is indeed glorious. It's indeed intricate. When we think about these themes, how they're woven together. When we think of the years that they were preserved and how they were dutifully recorded. When we think as we do the rest of Scripture, the multiple authors... And the ups and downs of historical ebb and flow by which these Psalms were carefully preserved as the precious treasure they are. The poetic and literary and historical situation of the Psalms, including Psalm 41, comes further into view, reminding us that this that we are reading this morning is the Word of God, and it is self evidently the Word of God. Because within its phrases and pages is a testimony to His glory. And it only takes eyes to see. The Holy Spirit gives. And when He does, we will see beauty, symmetry, and parallels and power coming forth from the pages to quicken the soul and to give us sufficient wellspring of praise to last us a lifetime. Yea, I say, into eternity from everlasting to everlasting. Secondly, a multi-perspective study of Psalm 41 reveals personal applications. Verses 1 through 3 have the theme of poverty. Verses 4 through 9, the theme of plight. If we consider the circumstances under which the psalmist labored, consider 3, perhaps the theme of presence of God. And then finally, where our attention is brought to bear the fact that all of these are praiseworthy themes. Verses 1 through 3 read Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Verse 3 The very personal application that all of us who have struggled with illness and all of us have in this life since sin reminds us that we can identify with. Verse 3, the Lord sustains him, that is his favored son in context, on his sickbed, in his illness, you restore him to full health. Thank Danny for signing me up for a subscription to the magazine from which I'll grab several quotes this morning. 33-year-old Dr. Kent Brantley is famous now. You've heard his name in the news, even if you don't remember, as the American citizen that came down with Ebola and has subsequently been healed. He and his wife and their two children moved to Liberia to be medical missionaries for a time. I began to recognize, Brantley says, that because of my commitment to Christ, I was a slave. I had already made the decision to follow him. So as long as I continued in that decision, the choice was already made. For the first time in my life, it also became very clear that as long as I follow him, he would provide everything I would need to be faithful to him. A reading of a man self-described as a slave to Christ who became a doctor, not because it was a dream that he had to be successful, but this is how he describes his motive. It was never my dream to be a doctor, he said, Being a doctor was simply a tool to do the job to which God has called me. Let me tell you, the testimony of this man is a good example of what it means to follow Christ, so far as I can read in this article. He later says, after his test for Ebola proved positive, he'd come down with this disease where mortality was more likely than healing. By statistical measure, he says, whether I live or die, I want God to be glorified. His wife says, and when Kent said those words, he never expected that the world would hear them. Here's a man who uttered in the confines of his small group of family and friends this testimony. Whether I live or die, I want God to be glorified. Here's a man on his sickbed. This disease is such that in its later stages... Because of the necessary quarantining policies, he says, Brantley says, that it concerns him the most that people die alone. They cannot touch their relatives. The only contact with humans is with a shadowy form in a spacesuit, fully clad so as not to contract the deadly virus. He watched as one person after another died under these horrible conditions until the day where he himself was declared positive. Now his story and his testimony and his prayers were answered in a way that proves Psalm 41.3 true. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Now this is one example of God's healing in this life. But We are assured, every last one of us, whether we live or die, as Brantley was convicted we will be healed. Why was this man healed? Why was he sustained and restored to fullness of health even in this life? Well, God knows the answer. And I think his subsequent testimony is also instructive as a good example. He says, well, I still do not know exactly where God is calling me. I have no doubt, no hesitation, that he has called me to be a full-time medical missionary. Said, and as I dream about what that will look like in the years to come, my heart leaps with excitement and joy, knowing that He has called me. This is the testimony of more than just a physical healing. This is the testimony of a healed heart, who is willing to throw himself back into the fray, of risk and pestilence for the glory of Christ, even when He has brushed the door of death itself, suffering with the world's most feared virus. This is a testimony of one who is identified by David when he says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. God does not heal or grant blessing for our glory, our comfort, and our benefit. If his reasons in granting to him the requests of his own stopped short at our glory or benefit, he would no longer be God and we would supplant him. Blessed is the one not just who is healed from a physical ailment. Rather, blessed is the one who is healed unto something. Unto what? Considering the poor. Considering the call that God has in our lives to reach the lost, to reach the destitute, to reach the needy. There is good reason for the Lord to save that man if he so chooses. Because he is engaged in his life. Serving the purpose of the glory of the Lord. In two ways. Either passively in his death or actively in his life. And this is the message of poverty for us. Remember that we are impoverished of soul, dependent and utterly so physically and spiritually on Christ alone to resurrect and give us life. But remember that He does not call us to this end so that we ourselves alone benefit. But instead, His glory and kingdom are the beneficiaries of our health when we continue to consider our calling, considering the poor and the reasons that God has delivered us, protected us, kept us alive, blessed us in the land, and not given us up to the will of our enemies. So the personal applications of Psalm 41 abound, even when we are in the throes of our own affliction. Secondly, consider David's plight. In verses 4 and following, he says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. David recognizes his plight is not just a foreign pestilence, but an intrinsic evil, his own sin. Verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity when he goes out it. When he goes out, he tells it abroad, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so we see in David's plight multiple wars, uh, battle lines drawn against him. First, there is the internal, suicidal nature of his own sin, the self destructive, threatening force of his own malady of soul. And he prays for healing from that enemy. Secondly, there's the fear of the declared enemies those who have boldly and brazenly set their face to oppose him in his life and calling. These were family members at times, as we read in the text, they were foreign enemies. They were anyone and everyone, it seemed, at times, save for a select few who were loyal, that would oppose David when it was convenient for them. And with sometimes a decision made by the fickle whim of popular opinion, even his whole people could have turned, can turn against him in an hour, as the narrative records. There's the suicidal nature of sin. There's the fear of the declared enemies. But there's also the disillusion, the distrust, and the cynicism that can knock at the door of the heart when our closest family and friends deceptively betray us. But David found sufficient reason for hope even under these circumstances. Thus, the personal application of Psalm 41 reminds us that no matter the poverty of our own soul or that surrounds us, If we have Christ, we have hope. And no matter the warfare and the plight that we are in and surrounds us, if we are in Christ, we have help, we have hope. And thirdly, David emphasizes the reason why. It's because of what we understand in the New Testament as union with Christ. That is unity with the presence of God. He says in verse 10 and following, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. For this I know, that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set, in, and set me in your presence forever. How could this be said in the same breath, and the same song as David's prior confession, heal me for I've sinned against you. If it, if it is sin on the inside, how can David say that his Lord delights in him? Well, only if the promise of Christ and his blood and imputed righteousness is true. And here in faith, David declares that the good in him is not of him. That his integrity comes from a different source. It is God's grace that allows him to say this with faith. And it is ultimately Christ in which his presence with God is is assured. His communion that is with God is assured and the presence of God with him forever. Thus David erupts at the knowledge and testimony of such assurance with praise as we've read, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And with that closing verse, we're reminded that these themes are praiseworthy themes. Listen to this Summary statement. This truth that we can learn from the text here. Affliction. Affliction is the stuff of worship songs. For the self-consciously redeemed. That is anything in our poverty. In our plight. In the enemies inside and out. When we are in Christ. When we self-consciously. That is with our testimony of faith and awareness. Cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Then all those enemies, inside and out, become the stuff of worship. They become praiseworthy things. The old me that I confess is dead, I can now freely testify is a war trophy for my conquering Messiah. The parts of me that would war against God's will and purpose for my life, I do not have to fear them anymore because His armaments are sufficient. I only fear the Lord and in so doing, what would otherwise distract and destroy the soul and utterly deceive, blind, and kill and condemn as now an enemy under the foot of the Messiah. And he shall reign as we previously read until all his enemies become his footstool. And this is the testimony of the Messiah. And if you have enemies in your own life, which will one day be fully and finally evidently under the feet of Christ, even as your assurance is that they are there in His finished work, then the poverty and plight that you have wrestled with and dealt with become praiseworthy themes. Finally, in consideration of Psalm 41, from a multi-perspectival approach, it reveals to us prophetic implications. Consider, I won't read the whole psalm again but consider the shape as we've noted thus far verses 1 through 3 talk about a poverty and a humility a dependency and a consideration of the poor consider david the magistrate who himself never has to beg for a dollar ever again now presumably in his exalted position of wealth and affluence and authority can command servants at will who has riches overflowing, who never has to go hungry again. After all, he is king of a prosperous nation. Yet this man, though he is occupying a position of privilege, understands it is so important to not become distracted and hardened and jaded in the good times, but to consider the poor, to have his heart and mindset conditioned by grace, and to remember to condescend to those who God has called him to help, even as God has condescended to him. So that's the idea there, a theme in the first three verses. Secondly, consider that David laments a betrayal. Betrayal even unto the threat of death. David is fear, uh, afraid of losing his life. He said a deadly thing. Others have said a deadly thing has poured out on him. Thus, in the testimony of the onlookers, they don't see any good reason that things will go well with David, but they expect him to crash, to burn, to die. And this includes the context of close associations, presumably friends, well, indeed friends, verse 9, friends in whom he has trusted, and among whom he has eaten bread, shared fellowship and meals with, who have lifted up their heel against him. And then thirdly, in the sections of this psalm, verses 10 through 13 are a context of resurrection and ascension, if you will. But, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Raise me up, that is, from the threat of death, but raise me up also, as we've mentioned, unto ruling and reigning. Set me in your presence, that is, place me in a position of authority and prominence and influence. Use me, O God, Lord of Israel. And so here we have the shape. Now, if you turn with me to John 13, I think we can see a shape of gospel truth echoed in these thoughts we've just pondered, even in the declaration that Jesus makes in the teaching that he offers his disciples at this time in his ministry. Notice, first of all, in 13, verse 2, what Jesus does, this act of condescension, if you will, And when I use that term, I simply mean it in this way, that those of higher or him of higher position and authority graciously stoops or brings himself low in humility to help others who otherwise would be stranded. Verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Notice the context of supper here, the sharing of bread. Verse 4, he, Christ, laid aside his outer garments. Notice the posture and context of this event. Laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel. I was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What is the picture here? Jesus I submit to you, is considering the poor. There is an example here set for the disciples to consider the poor later. That is to stoop, to serve, to suffer with, and to reach out to those who are destitute and unclean. And to do it with the message of the gospel. This is clearly a gospel picture and we see as much when Jesus says... That there is a time signature upon its understanding. He says in verse 7, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. After what? After his finished work. When Christ had gone to Calvary, and when his ultimate stooping, not just washing of the feet, but being crushed, bruised, and broken, and killed for humanity's cleansing and washing was seen at that moment... The Holy Spirit will illumine on the day of Pentecost to the apostles the meaning of this event that we are reading. That Jesus Christ became poor to reach the impoverished of soul, to wash them free from the dust of sin and death, and then to lift them up in his presence to heights of glory eternal. Now secondly, there's the record of betrayal unto death. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This was followed, or this follows verse 16, and in this passage, Jesus had cited. Psalm 41, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is telling them that he is fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 41. Psalm 41 where David had written in verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I had trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus says, after the time of his betrayal by Judas and that event which then would lead to the cross where he would suffer and die, being betrayed by a friend, by a disciple, with whom he had broken bread and shared his time and friendship. At that time, the disciples would realize that every plan of God that had been prophesied in the old would be fulfilled. And we can now understand that Psalm 41 is like a double exposure of film. It's a picture of David's plight, and it's a picture of Christ's betrayal. There's a humble suffering servant, the beginning illustrated by theme. There's betrayal unto death that both David and Jesus speak of. And finally, there's resurrection and ascension. As David has said, but you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Christ Speaking of future events that would include his resurrection and ascension, says in the same passage in John 13, verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The prophetic implications of Psalm 41 are profound. And here we find in double exposure, if you will, the message of the gospel. The humble suffering servant who made himself low and of no reputation to reach those of us impoverished in our sin who otherwise would spit on his face with the Holy Spirit's illumination of the gospel. And even those, and Jesus even walked among those who would betray him. But this betrayal was sovereign. It was a betrayal unto death. And that death would accomplish His great work in saving those to whom He stooped to wash their feet. And then upon the fullness of their redemption, being fully paid for and satisfied on the cross, He would be resurrected and ascended to the Father. And so will we be resurrected in Him, all who trust in Jesus Christ As our Savior. Psalm 41, the first book of the Psalms, and the first book of the Psalms have revealed Christ to those with eyes to see, and I pray that they have revealed Christ to us even this morning. Psalm 41 is spoken of salvation as deliverance in verse 1, as healing in verse 4, as raising up or resurrection in verse 10. And these pleas, these cries from the heart of David, are realized, answered in the work of Christ. The Gospels give us the interpretation of the shadows of the Messiah appearing as if by double exposure in the Psalms. And may we grow to see them even clearer day by day as the Holy Spirit perfects the work of sanctification in us. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, We thank you for the beauty and the glory of our Messiah revealed in your holy word. I pray that these words might move us to cry out in faith for answered prayer, whatever plight this message may find us in. Lord, but not an answered prayer to serve ourselves, but answered prayer to serve your glory. I pray that you would help us, Lord, understand whatever state we find ourselves in. If we are in Christ that you have redeemed us and thus our life becomes a praiseworthy theme, the theme of salvation and redemption by Jesus Christ's own blood. I pray that we would always remember that Christ is central to his word and scriptures and therefore ought to be central to our confession and lives. I pray if there are any here who have not realized in the first place the glory of Christ and up to this point have only denied and betrayed him, I pray that they would cry out for salvation, cry out for deliverance, for healing, that you might raise them up, resurrecting them first from the death of sin and secondly and eventually to everlasting life where we will praise you, O Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen.